Welcome to On Tech Ethics with CITA Program. Our guest today is Nick Preferis, who is an assistant professor at Arizona State University's School of Social and Behavioral Sciences. His research interests include users' understandings of socio-technical systems, such as social media, societal discourse about technology, and issues of power and ethics in the digital landscape. Today, we are going to discuss how recent changes to the social media landscape may affect researchers and society. Before we get started, I want to quickly note that this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not designed to provide legal advice or legal guidance. You should consult with your organization's attorneys if you have questions or concerns about the relevant laws and regulations that may be discussed in this podcast. In addition, the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of our guest. And on that note, welcome to the podcast, Nick. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I gave you just a very brief introduction. Can you tell us more about yourself and what you currently focus on at Arizona State? Sure. So really broadly speaking, I do a lot of research into how people think about technology and its place in their lives. In particular, I focus a lot on social media, how users sort of develop expectations and beliefs about how social media works. And this is based not only on things like interface design, but also sort of their lived experiences and how companies uh, talk to users about their systems working. So I'll give you a couple examples. For example, along with Anna Lauren Hoffman at UW and Michael Zimmer at Marquette, I did an analysis of every single thing that Mark Zuckerberg has ever said in public about Facebook to understand sort of how his language use has evolved over time, you know, from sort of the Harvard college-only Facebook days to the IPO to congressional hearings. Uh, More recently, I've also been looking at Reddit's upcoming IPO and how it's been discussed by Reddit users, what sort of changes they imagine happening on the platform and the impact that it could have on their communities. I also do a lot of work on how users' expectations about information flows on social media sometimes, you know, maybe conflict with the actual on-the-ground flows. In particular, I've really looked a lot at how users think and, you know, sort of perceive actually scientific research that uses publicly available social media data. So, for example, along with Casey Feisler at UC Boulder, we actually surveyed Twitter users about sort of their contextual perceptions of the use of tweets for research. And we found some really interesting things. For example, that a majority of participants actually thought that researchers, for example, always have to ask permission to use social media data, even if it's public, which listeners of this podcast may know is not actually always the case. We also found that, you know, these these folks had really mixed feelings about their the idea of their tweets being used or quoted in studies. And lastly, not too long ago, along with a, a team of other researchers, I completed a big analysis of how scientists are actually using and gathering data from Reddit as part of scientific research. And so we looked at over 700 papers that actually had been published using Reddit data, mapped the domains this research was occurring in, subreddits that were being commonly studied, and the kinds of ethical issues that researchers are encountering and sort of discussing in their publications. Thanks, Nick. So you touched on quite a few things that I I think could be affected by a lot of the recent changes that have gone on in the social media landscape. But before we get into that, uh, can you provide us just with a quick overview of some of those recent major changes and other events that are taking place? Yeah, so it's it's been a wild year in social media. So this has included things like Elon Musk purchasing Twitter and very recently rebranding it to X. 
and I'll probably continue to refer to it as Twitter just because it's an ingrained habit. Meta launching its own Twitter competitor called Threads, the launch of uh, Blue Sky, which is in currently sort of a closed beta, which is another Twitter competitor backed by some former Twitter folks, including Jack Dorsey. Some big shifts towards federated social media platforms like Mastodon, you know, the giant rise of TikTok, as well as the subsequent banning of it from uh, government devices in, in certain U.S. states. And that's impacted researchers. Reddit gearing up for an initial public offering of stock. Some interesting lawsuits that have happened actually with Elon Musk and a hate speech watch group called the Center for Countering Digital Hate. The overall rise of generative AI systems like ChatGPT and MidJourney, as well as some really interesting policy changes happening in the EU with the introduction of the Digital Services Act, which would actually put many of these social media companies under stricter online speech rules, but would also give researchers access to specific kinds of data from the social media platforms themselves. And, you know, against this sort of backdrop, We've also had a number of changes in how these platforms themselves operate. And sort of most notably for researchers, there's been some big changes to uh, Twitter and Reddit's APIs or application programming interface, um, which, you know, researchers had sort of previously used to be able to collect really large data sets for, you know, either low cost or in many cases free, that's now essentially sort of been cut off. That really is a lot going on. So I think it might be helpful to break it down one by one per platform. You mentioned some of the recent changes to Twitter, uh, now known as X, um, but we'll probably refer to it as Twitter during this conversation. Uh, so what are, to get more specific, what are some of the implications there that researchers should be aware of? Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is that, you know, Twitter had been a really prominent source for researchers to sort of gather data really a, about a, a huge variety of topics from any, from everything from natural disasters to predicting flu trends, to trying to predict stock market movement, to understanding sentiment, to understanding politics and culture. You know, there's been essentially thousands of scientific research papers that have been published at this point using Twitter data. So it really had become this major, major source, you know, and site essentially for researchers to sort of gather data. And a lot of that was because they had relatively open APIs that really allowed you to sort of gather this data in bulk. You know, there's a researcher, Zenab Tufeki, who actually went as far as calling sort of Twitter the sort of model organism for understanding certain different social phenomena online. And, and that was because of this sort of openness. So in February of this year, Twitter actually announced that there would be some pretty big changes to its API. And this included removing most free access and introducing paid tiers. And as I understand it today, the cheapest version of the API, which costs $100 a month, only allows you to grab about 10,000 tweets a month, which is about less than 1% of what researchers could actually previously get for free. And while that still may sound like a lot of tweets to some folks, it's really just a drop in the bucket when you consider the millions of tweets that are essentially sent each day. And many researchers, you know, were actually pulling in on the order of millions and in some cases, billions of tweets. So they could really understand sort of broad scale trends in conversations and scientific phenomena on this platform. Now, today, if you want to gather a large amount of data, an enterprise account on Twitter's API 
can cost anywhere from between $42,000 to $210,000 a month. And that's not something that's really in the budget of most researchers. And, you know, it, particularly if you consider, you know, needing to pull or wanting to pull data across a much larger time scale, the costs just kind of keep adding up. So this has really killed a lot of ongoing research projects. It's certainly thrown major wrenches into works that students were doing for, you know, master's theses or dissertations. And it's just generally has made the you know process and cost of doing research on Twitter much more onerous. And in addition to this, Twitter has actually told some researchers that they would actually need to go back and delete data that they had previously collected under prior APIs, in particular, it's Decahose, which was an API that um, provided a random sample of 10% of all the content on the platform. This is, of course, unless they pay for an enterprise account. So this has some pretty tough implications for not only those you know, projects that relied on this data, but also for the prospects of sort of open science, which often encourage data set disclosure to further the reproducibility of that research. Now, I will say in April of this year, a group of academics, journalists, and other researchers called the Coalition for an Independent Technology Research sent a letter to Twitter actually asking them to help it maintain access. And that group listed over 250 projects that would actually be jeopardized by ending free and low-cost API services, including research into things like harmful content, information flows, crises, news consumption, public health elections, and political behavior. And while I think this group has done a great job in calling attention to the problems that researchers in this space face, ultimately, Twitter has not backed off their plans. So those are definitely some serious changes. And I think that Twitter is obviously one of the more prominent platforms, especially for researchers, um, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. So you mentioned earlier that Reddit is preparing for an upcoming IPO and there's some other things going on uh, possibly related to that. So can you tell us some more about that and the implications for researchers as well? Yeah. So, well, so Twitter wasn't the only social media platform to make some significant change to data access through its APIs. So Reddit's also made a number of pretty big changes, which have impacted both academic researchers and even Reddit's own moderation team, which actually resulted in this thing called the Reddit blackout. So maybe for listeners who might not be familiar with it, Reddit is this social media platform that's made up of these individual spaces called subreddits. Essentially, they're sort of individual communities that focus on things like history, fashion, gaming, funny pictures of cats, interviews, stock market trading, you know, really just about anything that you're interested in. And it's just really actually composed of nothing but hundreds and thousands of these smaller communities. And the thing I want to note is that these communities are actually moderated by volunteer moderators who most often come from within that community. Now, in mid-April, Reddit announced that it was going to be changing their APIs, which were previously free, and it would implement a system that charges for access. The Reddit CEO, Steve Huffman, actually said something along the lines of the Reddit corpus of data, right? So all the content that users are posting is really valuable, but we don't need to give away all that value to some of the largest companies in the world for free, right? So they're really seeing sort of the economic incentive as a reason to sort of close down these APIs. And in particular, Reddit, you know, and I think much like Twitter was has been worried about generative AI and people developing these massively profitable systems 
based on Reddit content. And these changes to the APIs, though, had the effect of killing a lot of third-party programs and systems that developers had made to do things like offer alternative ways to access Reddit. Um, for example, there was a popular browser called Apollo that let you, you know, go through and, and browse Reddit. It also killed a service known as PushShift, which was a sort of data repository that was very popular among academics and moderators. It allowed them to really sort of easily grab really large amounts of Reddit data. You know, I actually think that there's something on the order of about a thousand papers that cite PushShift data in some capacity. And it allowed historical Reddit data querying, something that Reddit's own APIs actually don't allow for. And it also killed the, a lot of the tools that moderators were using to actually help manage their subreddits. And so there was some dialogue between moderators and app developers and the folks that run Reddit on Reddit itself. But, you know, sort of the negotiations kind of fell apart and, it, you know, the changes that were promised were not really enough to sort of satisfy many of the moderators. So in response, many moderators began sort of what's now known as the blackout. Essentially, they turned their subreddits private, which kept out anyone who hadn't already been part of the community. And many of these subreddits that went dark actually had like millions of, of subscribers. And it actually, you know, it, just as a sort of a general impact on the internet more broadly, this actually had some really interesting impacts on Google search results. For example, if you searched on something in Google and the top result was a Reddit link, often during the blackout, when you clicked on that link, you'd be informed that the community had gone private and you couldn't access that information. Now, ultimately, many of the moderators eventually turned their subreddits back to public. And this was in part due to pressure from Reddit. They had actually gone through the process of pushing out and replacing some of the moderators that had turned the subs private with new moderators that actually sort of towed the party line, so to speak. And so this is an interesting moment in which you see, you know, sort of researchers and moderators, you know, having this shared vested interest in access to Reddit data. And I'll note once again, that the Coalition for Independent Technology Research put out a letter highlighting sort of the problems for, you know, both these communities, which again, brought some visibility to the issue. Now, sort of the, you know, big implications for researchers today is that push shift essentially is not what it was. Historical Reddit data is much harder to get access to. But maybe what gives us a little bit of hope for, you know, researchers at least is that Reddit has sort of promised that researchers who are engaged in not-for-profit research will continue to be able to access, you know, Reddit's APIs for free, though there's now a process by which you have to seek approval. One other change to Reddit's APIs that I, I want to note that happened during this time is that they changed their APIs so that content from subreddits that had been marked NSFW or not safe for work couldn't be made available through the APIs. Now, this may sound, you know, sort of silly, like, okay, who cares about that? But when you look at Reddit, many of the communities that are about drug dependency or drug abuse actually uh, are marked as not safe for work. You know, they're discussing adult topics. And a lot of health researchers actually really use these spaces to understand what's happening in these communities, to understand how people seek, you know, support, how novel drugs are, you know, producing particular effects and, you know, sort of reported effects. 
So, you know, even, even though there's this carve out, you know, for Reddit's APIs, there's still a lot of sort of questions up in the air about how all this is actually going to come to pass. Before we hear more from Nick, I want to tell you all about CITA programs, webinars, and courses that explore topics across professional areas that are meaningful to both early career and experienced researchers. Some of our newest offerings include a comprehensive course on qualitative data analysis, a webinar on how to meaningfully engage communities in research, and more. Visit citiprogram.org for more information. And now, back to our conversation. So you touched on a, a few things that I, I think point out larger trends going on that are leading to some of these changes. And I want to get to those. But before we do that, I think it'd be interesting to hear some more about some of these newer social networks and how they've kind of come about, maybe as a result of some of those larger trends. So can you tell us a bit more about Mastodon and Blue Sky and Threads and also how those are already being used or could be used in the research space? Yeah, so this is a really sort of nascent area right now, but one that's absolutely worth watching as it develops. Um, I'll start with Blue Sky and Threads because they sort of more closely fit the model of, you know, centralized social media that many of us are used to. And in a lot of ways, these are, you know, kind of Twitter clones. Blue Sky was actually created by some former Twitter folks, uh, Jack Dorsey's involved, and it's currently in a closed beta. So you actually have to get an invite to be on it. Now it uses a backend that purports to offer a lot of connectivity and data portability, which is certainly a positive. That's actually been a big critique that's been made of, for example, Facebook. But so far, there's only a few research papers or notes that are out there on Blue Sky that I've you know, managed to come across. And they're mostly just sort of tracing what the platform is and what affordances it offers. So that's a sort of really a kind of a developing space. Folks are still kind of figuring out what its social utility is going to be. Threads is a, you know, a social media platform that's now being offered by Meta, who owns Facebook and Instagram, where you post a shorter text or, or image updates or video updates. You know, but it's it's sort of built on that model where text is very central. And it actually got 10 million signups pretty quickly. But I think that space is still kind of figuring out what it wants to be as well. So again, there's not necessarily a lot in the way of research quite yet, although I expect we'll start seeing early papers, you know, pretty soon. But data collection is going to be a big question in these spaces. You know, Facebook, Instagram very famously, you know, sort of don't offer these open APIs. And so, you know, it's very difficult or there's certainly at least challenges to collecting data in that space, as opposed to sort of the older version of Twitter or Reddit. Now, Mastodon is really interesting because it functions very differently than Blue Sky and Threads. Mastodon is this sort of decentralized social network that's actually been around since 2016. Uh, but what makes it really sort of different is that it's made up of you know these independent servers that are actually organized around specific themes, topics, or interests. So I'll give you an example. Um, the Association of Internet Researchers Professional Organization, of which I am a part, actually has its own uh, Mastodon instance. And uh, instances can have you know sort of different interoperability and discoverability and even their own rules. Uh, but the nice part about Mastodon, Mastodon, generally speaking, is that you can also follow people on uh, many other Mastodon servers. 
And I think that Mastodon is really interesting because it points to this model of, you know, moving away from sort of centralized, centrally controlled social media platforms to the situation where everyone's kind of running their own servers and the servers are kind of aggregated. For researchers, though, there's definitely some challenges here. So, for example, there's, you know, at least with Mastodon, no singular all-encompassing API that you can just go and hit up and collect a huge number of posts that contain, you know, one particular keyword. Additionally, you know, there's not as many people. So while you might have a server or instance that's really active around one particular topic, you know, it's a much more scoped community. So you don't necessarily get those big, broad scale trends that a lot of researchers are, you know, often interested in. So in terms of moving kind of from more of that centralized to decentralized environment, are there implications there that researchers should be aware of in terms of the effects that has on user perceptions of things like privacy and so on? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of potential for that, not just on Mastodon, but other sort of disaggregated forms of social media. You know, Discord is one that doesn't often get talked about, but it's, you know, a really interesting space where, you know, people set up sort of their own, you know, it's kind of like Slack, their own internal Slacks. And, you know, one of the challenges there is, you know, both for researchers sort of discovering this space. So, you know, the nice thing about Reddit and Twitter is that you can just kind of go to one space and you can find communities very easily. Uh, you know, in this decentralized model, it's a lot harder to essentially, you know, get access to these spaces or even discover them. In addition, there's going to be differential views about the space and, you know, the degree to which it's actually public. You know, part of what, you know, made data collection and analysis on Twitter and Reddit so interesting and so popular was its public facing nature. This was sort of seen as the, you know, town square has been positioned that way, at least. You know, in these other spaces, people may have very different perceptions of privacy. And it's going to be an interesting question of, okay, well, how public is this space? How do we understand, you know, participants, you know, views on privacy in this space? How is an IRB going to treat this space versus, you know, another space where, you know, previously I didn't even have to have a Twitter login to go and look at content that was on Twitter. Definitely really interesting. And it'll be even more interesting to see how it kind of evolves over time. So yeah, we've talked about Twitter, we've talked about Reddit, Mastodon, Blue Sky, and Threads, but you also briefly touched on at the start, and I think that it would be helpful to go a little bit deeper on it. What should we know about the changes to TikTok? Maybe particularly the the talk around bans at the state level and, and so on. So that's been really fascinating to sort of watch. I mean, TikTok has had a I'm not sure controversial is the right word, but from a policy perspective, has not necessarily been greeted with open arms. And, you know, one of the issues that folks are worried about is data collection, where the data is being stored about uh, TikTok users. And sort of in response, different states have actually banned, you know, putting TikTok or allowing TikTok on government owned devices. Now, you know, what this actually means, though, for researchers is that if you're at a state institution that has this ban, you can't put TikTok on, you know, for example, a, a government owned phone. Now, one thing that has come up is that there's now a challenge to this, I believe in Texas, 
where Texas researchers are actually trying to sue to get this ruling overturned because they are doing research on TikTok and they need to be able to access it to understand these sort of big you know, things that are going on on TikTok. Throughout this conversation, you've touched on a few kind of larger trends that are influencing all of these changes. So you've talked about the the shift from centralization to decentralization, changes in API access, and so on. But I think it would be helpful if you could just quickly summarize for us all, what are some of these larger trends that are influencing these changes and, and what should we know about them? Yeah, so there's a lot of dynamics at play here that are sort of shaping these changes that I think researchers should be aware of. Certainly one of the big things that gets focused on is sort of the economic incentive structure uh, for these companies. So Twitter and Reddit both have a really strong incentive to protect what they see as the value of their data. And, you know, that was actually stated outright by Reddit CEO. And, you know, companies that develop large language models and AI systems have really been scraping up lots of data, not just on social media, but sort of across the web broadly in order to build these really robust systems that mimic natural conversation. And these businesses are essentially succeeding on the backs of open data. And, you know, in many cases, Twitter and Reddit, and also, you know, potentially chewing up huge amounts of bandwidth use in the process. Now, Elon Musk has actually expressed an interest in developing his own AI system, you know, and certainly having exclusivity on all of the content that's ever been sent through Twitter would give him a really unique competitive advantage in that space. So, you know, there's a lot of economic incentives that are going into sort of shutting down, you know, these these points for data to flow. I think more generally, we seem to be in a moment also where we're starting to see this move away, you know, sort of from the ideals of the open web of, of information being free, you know, particularly as we watch sort of this gold rush happening in the AI space. And another trend that I think folks should be aware of is that it really does kind of feel like a fracturing of the centralized web. You know, there's a lot more communities moving into smaller spaces, you know, spaces they maybe control, you know, this is a good example is Mastodon, but even ones that are, you know, a little bit more centrally uh, controlled, like Discord channels or Telegram uh, channels. These are spaces that aren't quite public in the same way that Twitter or even Reddit are. And like I said, this can make it harder for researchers to find these spaces, you know, to find data to find the communities that they're interested in, where those folks are congregating. Certainly. So we've touched on a lot of different changes in those trends too. Are there any additional resources that you would suggest for our listeners to check out to learn more about these issues? Yeah, certainly. So I've mentioned them twice already, but the Coalition for Independent Technology Research's letters are a great starting point for getting a snapshot of some of the issues that are specific to API changes. I want to mention a couple other groups. You know, the Citizens and Technology Lab at Cornell has really done some great work that highlights, you know, how dependent we are on these technical systems and how enmeshed they are with our social systems and how when we have changes in one, it can impact, you know, these others. Um, the Knight uh, First Amendment Institute at Columbia University has some really amazing work on how these state-level TikTok bans are impacting researchers. And, you know, certainly even huge publications right now, like Science and Nature, have actually recently had articles that focus on the impact that API changes will have on the research community. 
And, you know, finally, I'll also say that, you know, professional organizations like the Association of Internet Researchers have been really actively involved in trying to understand these changes and figure out what they might mean for researchers. Wonderful. And I'll certainly include links to the, all of those resources that you mentioned in our show notes so our, our listeners can learn more. On that note, do you have any final thoughts you would like to share that we did not already touch on? I think that sort of overall researchers, you know, are, are very often sort of siloed into their particular subjects, um, you know, their particular research interests. But I do think there's a lot of value in being sort of broadly aware of changes that are sort of going on in this large ecosystem. And that way, you know, we don't stay wedded to one particular platform, right, that we develop sort of a plurality of approaches and understandings of, of these different spaces. Thank you again, Nick. And before we go, I invite all of our listeners to visit citiprogram.org to learn more about our courses and webinars on research ethics and compliance. And with that, I look forward to bringing you all more conversations on all things tech ethics.